Welcome into the show. It is Daniel Wertman coming to you live 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call. All time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in on this Tuesday, May the 7th. Welcome to the show. It is... um, is going to be a busy show as we go through the plethora, and I don't use that word lightly, plethora of lawsuits and legal challenges facing U.S. soccer. So if you're trying to figure out what's going on, why are we having all of these issues, what is the progress of some of these lawsuits, etc., we will have Mickey Turner on in just a few moments to to talk about that and to dig into the craziness that is this dysfunctional mess we call the United States Soccer Federation. And it is dysfunctional in so many ways. Um, we were talking a little bit about it yesterday with Matt Barnes, a uh, uh, part of the team that is working with the FC Helsinger Project in Denmark. And Matt was just kind of talking about some of the, the, the dysfunctions of the system that he's felt as a coach coming up through the ranks, whether that be access to licensing, access to, to jobs themselves, uh, coaching positions, etc. So it, it is, it is, it's, it's crazy, the, the mess that we call U.S. soccer, what should be functioning to help Every coach, every player, every club uh, aspire to become their best and, and then actually be a federation that works to make sure that happens. Uh, we're not we're, we're not living in that world. That, that world doesn't exist here in the U.S. And it's 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 sad. It's it's unfortunate. It's frustrating. I mean, there there is uh, th- there are a lot of words that we could use to describe the state of U.S. soccer Fully functioning, operational, um, well-run, none of those words we would use to describe the Federation. There's just so much that we're not getting right. So, um, But I, I do want to say a big thank you to Matt Barnes coming on yesterday to kind of talk about the FC Helsinger project and his own background and experience today. Like I said, we have Mickey Turner coming on in a few moments Tomorrow, Ken Richards, um, the father of Chris Richards, who uh, recently transferred to Bayern Munich, will be on the show tomorrow. And uh, Thursday, we have Luke Berry 
He is the director of operations for Port City FC of the Gulf Coast Premier League. And on Friday, we have Tristan Tillette. So um, we, we've got a, a busy lineup this week. And, and so we are um, we're, we're, we're really excited today to kind of dig into this this legal stuff and figure out what's going on and and why is it going on um if we can uh, but uh really kind of figure out some of the nuts and bolts of the cases etc today is uh the return leg of uh fc barcelona liverpool at anfield and uh luis suarez has already come out and said look if i score at anfield i will not celebrate out of respect for the fans um and, and this is a conversation that uh, Eric Winalda and I had last week off air. I don't remember if we had it on air, but uh, we were talking about Luis Suarez scoring and then, you know, celebrating with this, you know, big, you know, knee slide fist pump at the Camp Nou. And, uh, and, 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 you know, that Liverpool fans were going to just really come after him for, for celebrating that way. So it's interesting uh, that, that, He's already been told, basically, hey, uh, don't do that again at at Anfield. That's not smart. So whether that's of his own accord or whether that's talking to some others in his ear, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see. In terms of the match itself, I, I do think Liverpool's going to, to score today. Uh, but without Salah and without Firmino, uh, I do I just don't see a way back for this team uh, to to overcome this three nil deficit. So I I'm predicting Barcelona to win two to one, and I think that uh, the the second goal comes later on uh, as Liverpool are pressing and pressing and pressing, and uh, so I I think in the end the the aggregate score will be you know five to one in favor of Barcelona at the at the end of this uh, I just think that Liverpool's going to go for it as they should and I think that's going to give Barcelona some opportunities to uh, create some havoc for the Liverpool defense because you're going to see uh, Liverpool being so aggressive trying to uh, to force the action and and to get some get a, get some goals and and don't forget in this match you're you're also going to not only be without Firmino and Salah if you're Liverpool you are also without Keita who had been playing extremely well uh, in the midfield and so it, it's it's just going to be an uphill climb I don't see it coming back and I also think um, that that one of the elements and and Liverpool's been resilient all year and they still have something to play for this weekend in terms of trying to finish top of the league and praying for another miracle uh, for Man City to to drop points but the reality is that match yesterday Leicester played almost a perfect match to get Liverpool the draw they needed except for one moment where the midfield did not close down company who had not scored all year and they let him just come in, come in, come in. And they, they didn't think he would shoot company's own teammates were telling him not to shoot. And he hit the goal of his life. And that goal probably secured man city, the premier league title. It was, it was uh, heart wrenching. If you were rooting for Liverpool to watch that, to see how close 
you were to to having control of your own destiny and then to see that ball go in the top corner and there there you know other than closing him down there was nothing that Schmeichel could do in goal and it was it was just it was brutal uh brutal for uh for Liverpool so um you know it's it is what it is and um you know you're just gonna have to figure out a way to play today and play this weekend hope for the best and if nothing works out you're gonna look back on a season where you played really really well and you have nothing to show for it and and hope that you can just build on this for next year so we'll we'll see what they do today um another story that that came out yesterday uh was uh bob williams uh wrote this uh, talking about fc barcelona femini this is their women's team and their women's uh program there at fc barcelona um they they have been in talks to put a team in the nwsl now traditionally women's soccer has been the 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 pinnacle of women's soccer has been here in the U.S. Uh, our our national team program, our players, uh, Title IX has played in a, a huge, huge part of this uh, for decades, giving the U.S. an advantage in the in the global game when it comes to women's football. And and so FC Barcelona uh, a few years ago opened an office in New York, and they also opened an office in Hong Kong, and they they obviously have their main main headquarters there in Barcelona but the three offices are are offices of the same club they're not separate they're 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 basically you know the New York office is basically the the US outpost of Barcelona's office so they're they're they they work on deals together they're not isolated it's one kind of big thing and 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 Barcelona recognized that in the US system and in, in in this country that the there is a real opportunity to 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 put a women's uh team in in this country and elevate their own women's program back in barcelona and kind of build the fc barcelona brand here in the u.s and so they they got into conversations and negotiations with the nwsl uh, about putting an fc barcelona femini team in the nwsl and it it it's it's still in limbo and the main reason it is in limbo is is for those of you who who are unaware the NWSL was created as a legal entity and as a business plan and business model to be nearly identical to the creation of major league soccer in the mid 90s nearly identical um, they, they took a little bit of, of, the, of, of the startup of MLS 1.0 in the mid nineties. They put a little bit together with some of the, uh, soccer United marketing element by creating NWSL media and trying to kind of bundle that, which was the early two thousands, but that's basically their starting point. This is the origin point. And, and the NWSL for that reason has been going through the same identical, outcomes as mls they've already had contraction they've had stability issues um they're they're not able to expand as as quickly as they need to 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 get a bigger footprint and build a a bigger fan base all of these things go back to centralized control and and being single entity creates a lot of problems 
And and one of the problems has to do directly with this FC Barcelona Femini project because um, Xavier O'Callaghan, which is the managing director of FC Barcelona's U.S. office, um, you know, spoke yesterday at the Sports Decision Maker Summit in Miami and said that the club's long-term sponsorship deal with Nike, which covers all versions, including the women's team, remains the holdup. The NWSL currently has a commercial partnership with Nike, but could move to a rival like Puma or Adidas in the future. And should that happen, then FC Barcelona would have to leave the NWSL, which is a situation the club wants to avoid. Um, and so what they are, what they, what FC Barcelona is trying to, to do is get an exemption to say that we understand you, you've got this weird model of single entity and we're willing to deal with that because it's, you know, we, we, we would like to be a part of something, building something in the U S so we'll figure out some of that. We would rather just be a club running a club in America, but we'll set that aside. We'll figure out something with single entity, but we have to have an exemption on our sponsorship deal. Um, you know, if you need to bundle everybody else together, but we have to stay Nike in order to play. And, and, and so they've, they've been at an impasse. And so the NWSL here, the, 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 one of the most visible and popular brands in the world is wanting to put a team with the same brand here in the U S they're having trouble. They can't get off the ground and they they've had contraction and here is FC Barcelona willing and wanting to be a part of this, put their own brand, attach it to the NWSL, help build this whole project, use their own brand equity to raise the profile of the NWSL. And yet the NWSL and U.S. soccer, which is a heavily a part of this, are not allowing FC Barcelona to control their own destiny when it comes to the sponsorship piece with their jerseys and and it just goes to show how far behind we really are in the way that we do things the structure of our system and that's really what we are going to be getting into with mickey turner when we get into all of these lawsuits etc which are it's coming up uh just after uh the break so it it is going to be interesting to follow i mean we we see this you know you keep doing the same things over and over, expecting different results. That's a definition of insanity. We all know it. And yet U.S. soccer keeps beating its head against the wall over and over and over and over and over. It's crazy. And um, I wish they'd stop. I wish they would empower clubs to build and and let the clubs themselves be accountable to themselves rather than trying to control everything because it's making things worse. So anyway, the sponsor for today's show is Charity Water. If you don't know about Charity Water, learn more about them at charitywater.org. They provide clean drinking water to people all over the world. We will be right back with Mickey Turner. उनीहरु बच्चाहरुले एक क्लास दुई क्लास तीन तीन क्लास गरे बच्चाहरुले उनीहरु सहजै रुपमा चाहिँ उपयुक्त गर्न सक्छन् 
Mati carpansu. Welcome back to the show. We are delighted to have joining us Mickey Turner. Mickey, how's it going this morning? Good morning, uh, Daniel. Uh, early out here on the uh, West Coast, uh, but I had some coffee, so I'm ready to go. Nice. You're a trooper, man, for, uh, for, for making time for the show. We really do appreciate you coming on. Um, so I just want to, you know, kind of uh, get get into all of everything we can get into in the time that we have in terms of all of the, the legal challenges and, and any updates or anything you're hearing or, or maybe going back and having read through uh, some of the, you know, formal complaints and responses and, and kind of get your thoughts. So first thing I, I wanted to kind of get back into that we, we touched on a couple of weeks ago when you, you, you dropped by the show, what is the solidarity payments and training compensation issue in regards to major league soccer and, um, and, and then finally deciding to be FIFA compliant in this area. Um, what more have you learned about that? And, and is, are they being fully FIFA compliant or is this kind of a little of a, a hoodwink, uh, in terms of how far they're willing to go in terms of being uh, FIFA compliant? I think the short answer is yes, they are being FIFA compliant in that there's not anything that they're not doing, if that makes sense. Um, so they're going to be, uh, you know, the announcement came down, uh, goodness, when did it come down, uh, around the 17th of April, uh, that they were uh, going to be um, implementing the system. And, you know, they're going to be paying the payments. Uh, they're going to be asking to receive the payments. And, you know, for those who you know may not know, and I'm sure most of your listeners slash viewers are are pretty well aware of what's going on, but um, the solidarity and training compensation system is only, as far as FIFA is concerned, uh, related to foreign transfers. That is, when uh, a player goes from one 
country to another or one federation, I guess, not federation, but confederation to another. So we're not talking about domestic payments here. So this won't be a case where MLS is paying for a player like DeAndre Yedlin when he moves from Crossfire to the Seattle Sounders. Uh, MLS will not be paying uh, that money to uh, Crossfire for the training compensation that uh, you know that Yedlin would have earned Crossfire for the time that he was there. And that is not a FIFA regulation, and there's no domestic requirement. So um, MLS isn't doing anything quote-unquote wrong there. Now, there are num- numerous countries that do have a domestic training compensation system, so it's something that certainly could be put into place here and would not run necessarily afoul of any uh, FIFA regulations or any laws per se. And in fact, there were discussions back in 2015, 2016 uh, between various youth academies, um, MLS and uh, US Soccer Federation about implementing a domestic system, but those talks didn't go anywhere ultimately. And again, there's no law that requires that that kind of stuff. So the short answer is yes, MLS is going to be in, or they will, they are in compliance uh, because they said they were, you know, starting this uh, effective immediately, essentially. And so they're going to be pursuing those claims, paying those claims, um, and we'll have to wait and see how it works out going forward because we don't know if they have put in claims for any players as of yet. Or if any, uh, you know, any teams have put in claims to MLS for payments. Uh, so this is all still kind of new. We're, you know, literally three weeks uh, away from the announcement. Um, so the next step is going to be to see how how this uh, gets implemented and if there are any challenges. Because the Players Association is, Association is still not happy about this, and they are certainly still exploring their options. Now looking at this um i want to kind of do a a hypothetical um let's say there is another deandre yedlin that is at crossfire now and goes to mls and then mls then sells him on to you know arsenal in in this occasion what um what would happen for crossfire now that that MLS is saying they're going to honor solidarity payments um, and training compensation internationally, which is the FIFA requirement. Um, FIFA does not demand that, you're right, that that national uh, federations have their own domestic internal policy, but they do encourage it. They would prefer that that, that exist. And many countries, as you, as you stated, have that internal system. Um, and in England, for example, it's tiered, right? So like if, if a, if you're a tier one club, then you, it's kind of a preset level of compensation that, that gets paid to that club when you sign that player tier two, tier three, it kind of takes in the operations of the club and kind of the, the general investments that a club is making into, um, you know, developing players, et cetera. So we don't have that, as you noted, here domestically. Right. But in this case, if we were looking at, you know, DeAndre Yedlin part two, uh, a new kid that comes up, goes from Crossfire to MLS, from MLS to Arsenal in this case, and Arsenal has to then pay the solidarity payment back, wouldn't Crossfire in that case 
shouldn't they be getting a portion of those funds or is MLS going to try to keep all of that money for themselves? What, what have you seen or read or heard in that regard? So um, some people may have read uh, Jeff Carlisle's breakdown of, of the case. Uh, obviously I did one with Paul Tenorio for the athletic. Um, and one of the points uh, that uh, Carl, Jeff Carlisle kind of focused on was that there appears because, and I'm sure we'll get to this, because the uh, FIFA dispute resolution chamber denied Crossfire's claims on Yedlin, we're in a place where we have a potential double standard or uh, a hole uh, in the system where MLS can pursue these claims, but we're not sure if the youth academies um, will be able to. The reason we're kind of in a, in a, there's a hole right now is because we haven't seen the reason why Crossfire's claim on uh, Yedlin was denied. But the, uh, the the long and short of it is, in theory, Crossfire would be entitled to a, a portion of that fee, uh, the solidarity fee, uh, upon the transfer from MLS to, in this hypothetical, uh, Arsenal. Um, and so Arsenal, is, as a buying team, would be the one that's required to hold back whatever solidarity fee is 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 due to this Yedlin too. Um, so, but... It's possible that Arsenal says, all right, we're holding back this this fee and we're just going to pay at the crossfire and there's no problem. But there's also the chance that uh, either MLS or Arsenal says, well, because of the ruling, we do not we're not required to pay these solidarity fees to crossfire for or for this uh, Yedlin too, and they just refuse uh, to do so. Now, again, we don't know what the ruling says, but if Crossfire feels they have a, a legitimate grievance, then they would go back to the dispute resolution chamber and make their claim again. Uh, if the reason that the Yedlin claim was denied in the first place is because of shoddy record keeping, which is, was one of Tottenham's defenses, then maybe this time around with Yedlin 2 and U.S. soccer now keeping proper records, that remedies that issue. But if there's some other reason that the DRC denied the uh, initial Yedlin claim um, because uh, – Crossfire is not a professional organization that can't offer professional contracts, um, then we've got other issues, uh, or Crossfire would in that situation. So, uh, the, it, the, the, again, the long and short of it is we need to see the reason why uh, the initial Yedlin claim was uh, rejected before I can give you a full answer on whether Crossfire would be able to pursue a claim against Yedlin too, uh, because depending on the reason, uh, it would affect uh, the rights of of Crossfire. So as as we kind of look at the case, I mean, to me, uh, and, and when I say case, I, I mean like this new hypothetical case. To me, the the place that I'm left with is we're we're in a we're still in a place of unknown, and when because it's not a matter of if it's when the next case comes uh as a result yeah. of this what is what what then becomes the outcome because the the rumor that that is surrounding the the Yedlin case the original case um has has as much to do with US soccer record keeping as it does anything else and and not necessarily some of the the other you know um defenses that were, were put up as to why they weren't paid um which um i'd say they're more than rumors yeah. <laughs> i'd say they're they're pretty accurate right right so um 
so knowing that, uh, to me, that kind of even opens up U.S. soccer to yet another lawsuit, and this one could be the most uh, uh, damaging in the standpoint that it could be considered a class action lawsuit if you had all of these clubs come together and 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 sue the federation for um, inability to fulfill its duties. And uh, and and the the thing is. If you look at U.S. soccer, and I started off the show today talking about how U.S. soccer is this dysfunctional mess. Um, if you look at U.S. soccer, the federation, and you look at its bylaws and its policies, the things that are written, not not what they do, which is which is the rules that they live by, but the actual rules that are written, you can you could make a class action lawsuit in a, in a variety of ways on a variety of subjects because they're just they're not even living up to their own rules as they currently stand and even those rules are not even necessarily um uh, correct in terms of of fifa and some other things in specific areas so and, and we see some of that right so uh one of the other lawsuits uh that that surrounds some of this is um is the the nasl lawsuit have you heard anything updating on that have you seen anything recent in terms of progress i know there's uh discovery they're in discovery right now and i believe i read the other day that they extended or asked for extension on discovery um in terms of the timeline have you seen any progress or updates on that lawsuit yeah so there's uh the short answer is they're just going they're going through the process i mean it's it's a lawsuit and it's highly likely to go to trial um and Therefore, they have to just kind of go through the paces, uh, the procedural paces of any lawsuit, and they're doing that, um, you know, exchanging documents, uh, setting up uh, depositions and interviews with witnesses. This is going to be a long, complicated trial, most likely, assuming it gets there. Um, it's highly unlikely to settle, uh, given given the parties involved and what we're talking about here. Um, and so at this point, yeah, you're correct. Uh, recently, the discovery schedules were pushed back to accommodate, uh, you know, the schedules of, of the parties. And some of the reality is that this is going to take much longer uh, than uh, certainly the um, NASL wanted. And so basically, the discovery cutoff is November of this year. Um, and so everyone's got to have everything in by that point. Um, you know, you exchanged all the documents, you've interviewed all your witnesses. And so everyone at that point will be able to present to the judge, yeah, we've done all of the investigation that we need to do. Um, and then we're ready to go to trial. Uh, before the trial, of course, there is one last uh, motion or procedural issue that will likely happen, uh, which is uh, MLS and the Federation filing a summary judgment action to dismiss the case, basically saying even if you agree with everything that uh, the NASL has alleged, uh, they still don't have a case as a matter of law. Um, and then, so that motion will likely be filed, you know, let's say December one, and then they'll they'll have their motion on that issue, say six weeks later. So that gets you basically to the middle part of January, early February, 2020 on a summary judgment motion. Assuming the NASL survives that, then you get your trial schedule set because at that point there's no other uh, motions uh, that need to be um, had, um, assuming we don't have appeals and we're, I'm not even going to get into that. Um, so assuming that you know NASL survives a summary judgment motion, 
then you get your trial set schedule. So then you're talking about probably, oh, uh, spring, early summer of 2020, um, let's say June, just for uh, uh, to pick a month. And so then you've got your trial in June. And then, you know, you're probably looking at a two to three week trial and then you'll get your verdict. So we are unlikely to have an answer or resolution on this case before summer of 2020. Uh, so obviously what that means for NASL's prospects of returning, uh, it obviously was not great to begin with and even less so the longer this, this goes on. But, you know, obviously there, you know, this is something of an ideological fight as much as a practical one to get back on the field. Um, so, you know, we'll just have to kind of wait and see, but yeah, they're just going through the paces right now. Uh, and, uh, I know a number of people have already been deposed in this case on both sides, uh, which I won't go into here because I was not given authority to speak, but rest assured the people that you think have been deposed in this case have uh, either have already been deposed or will be shortly. So it, uh, it shall be interesting. Unfortunately, um, most of the stuff in this case has been sealed or is under protective order which makes it very difficult for me to dig and dig and find it. Um, so I can tell all, all of you guys about it. Uh, you know, it was a lot easier to do that early in the case uh, when uh, before the prote protective orders and seals were in place. So uh, unfortunately, a lot of information that I would love to get is, is behind lock and key. Is that, is that standard? The, the, you know, under under protective order, is that standard for for a lawsuit like this, or is this uh, special circumstances? No, I'd say it's it's not surprising that a lot of the stuff, you know, a lot of the stuff is you know proprietary information, business records, uh, trade, uh, and all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, and so frequently, as it is under seal, uh, I ironic, uh, not ironically, but just oddly enough, early you know early when I was digging through the case, as I was just referencing, a lot of the stuff was not under seal, and it was a ton of stuff in there that uh, I was able to get a lot of it filed by the Federation, uh, like, uh, you know, the articles of formation for NASL, um, uh, certain financials and things like that. And uh, it's interesting that, you know, obviously once this case got started, uh, both parties decided that they did not want their dirty laundry being aired in public. And again, I can understand why. Um, and there is a certain amount of protection that the, you know, these organizations are afforded, but it's just one of those funny things that, uh, you know, early on we had much more access to, to interesting information than we do now. And, uh, I think both parties are, do not want that information out if they can help because, you know, uh, while the Federation doesn't want their dealings with MLS out there, I don't think NASL particularly wants their financials out there because, you know, let's remember they were struggling to a fair degree and, uh, and I'm sure they don't want necessarily want, uh, the extent to which they were struggling out there as much as, um, MLS and U uh, S soccer don't want the sum, you know, the sum agreement out there. So this lawsuit, I mean, if you look at it, the, the length of time that it's going to take to go from, from start to finish on, on the suit, uh, which, you know, pretty much began what fall of 2017, and yeah september 2017 is when they filed it right so uh, nasl filed it that is right so we're coming up already on the two-year anniversary this fall and crazy crazy right and then yeah. and then 
looking at, according to what you're estimating, earliest it goes to trial is next summer. So we're talking about almost three years in before it even gets to trial. Is the and you alluded to this a second ago. Is is the purpose of this trial? Is it really to get the NASL on the the field again, or? And this is this is just kind of my take on this. Or is this about principle? Is this about you know for for the leagues and projects and clubs uh, for for the entirety of the system? This is a principle project. Meaning, and, and when I say that, this is what I mean that it's not necessarily about winning the case so the NASL comes back as NASL 3.0 as much as it's about making it so that U.S. soccer is unable to do what it did to the NASL to anyone else in the future. And and kind of that is the legacy of the lawsuit um, more so than getting the NASL functional and playing again. Did, do you follow my, my train of yeah. thought on that? Oh, 100%. And I think you're, you're, you're spot on uh, that this it, – it initially, I think, started out as NASL wanting to get back on the field. Because remember that uh, when they filed this back in 2017, they immediately filed uh, for a preliminary injunction to try to prevent U.S. soccer from uh, – or reverse essentially U.S. soccer's uh, sanctioning decision um, or desanctioning decision, um, if you want to put it that way. Um, and so NASL was hopeful to get back on the field in, you know, let's say the spring of 2018 um, and, and continue playing while they pursued this lawsuit. And they lost that. At that point, you know, they had a couple of uh, attempts to, to, you know, to push out a, a relaunch of the league. Uh, I think they initially wanted to try to get back in. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. And they also tried to go to a, a fall spring schedule um, starting in, I think, 2018. And then obviously that didn't work. Uh, you had uh, North Carolina FC uh, move from the NASL to uh, to the USL, uh, a couple of other teams. And uh, Edmonton, I think, you know, uh, 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 functionally uh, went on hiatus or folded until they you know, have recently come back to the Canadian League. Um, and so once it became apparent that it was just not going to be something that they were going to be able to do, uh, I think, yeah, they then, you know, they then transitioned to a, uh, a position where they're fighting, you know, you know, fighting the good fight uh, to, you know, to use a phrase to, to stop U.S. soccer from doing what they believe is hamstringing uh, the development of soccer in the United States, uh, you know, primarily through what they believe are unfair professional league standards and their, and their, what they believe is a cozy relationship with, uh, with MLS. So at this point, I think it is, it is mostly a ideological battle because by the time this case gets decided and you may have appeals as well, you're talking, it could be 2021 before this case is finally resolved. Um, which is two years from now and will have been four, potentially five years since the NASL last kicked the ball on the field. And, you know, who knows what the landscape of soccer in the U S is going to look like in 2021. Uh, you'll have a world cup coming up. You'll have uh, the USL continuing to develop. 
Um, MLS will have a bunch of uh, new expansion teams. Um, and so all of those, and then you've got the uh, NISA trying to make some moves, and then uh, the MPSL, UPSL, uh, all, all of those leagues trying to do their thing as well. So uh, you, uh, the NSL could probably or may find itself in, as kind of a league out of time with where things were when they initially filed this lawsuit. Um, and, you know, that's just the realities of you know, federal lawsuits like this. They, you know, they take a while. You're typically going to be in the trial process for uh, around two years if you're lucky to get one that early. Um, and in a case like this with, you know, many complicated issues, uh, it's, you know, once they fail to get the injunction, they were just going to have to, you know, settle in for the long, the long haul. And so at this point, it's, you know, you know I've, I've talked to some NASL folks, you know, fairly recently, um, you know, back in, you know, late winter around February, but it's just, you know, at this point, I think the, uh, the, the, the goal has transitioned from, you know, getting back on the field to affecting what they believe is necessary change um, in U.S. soccer. So I think that's where we are right now. So uh, another lawsuit that I wanted to look at was, uh, and it's not really a lawsuit, it was, it was a challenge with the Court of Arbitration in sport. It included originally uh, Miami FC and uh, Kingston Stockade FC. And, you know, they filed on behalf of, of all American clubs asking for the Court of Arbitration in sport to um, basically force or demand U.S. soccer to fulfill its uh, duties as a member of FIFA and institute promotion and relegation, uh, a system of promotion and relegation uh, based on sporting merit for the U.S. Um, have you heard any any updates on that? Any progress uh, in terms of you know a trial? It's not really a trial, but I guess. Uh, uh, a convening of the court and in any, um, you know, updates in terms of when a decision might, might be forthcoming. So here's the quote. I, I talked to a direct source on, on, on this, um, who was associated with the claim and they told me, uh, it is a quote unquote black hole of information. Uh, so there is absolutely nothing that I have been able to find, um, beyond that. Uh, regarding uh, the status of that case. No one knows anything, not even the principal parties. Um, yeah, and I've been absolutely following that case. I, I've read the uh, the complaint that was filed. I need to actually take another look at that just to refresh my memory. But they, uh, this was relatively recently, I want to say within the last couple of months, uh, I, I checked in on that. And no one has been able to find any information out about where that stands. It's It's a bit unusual um, because, again, I haven't looked at the, the complaint in a while, but I, I want to say they filed that back in 2017, give or take. Um, and it's just been impossible to find any information about that. Uh, so, you know, we're just kind of in a holding pattern on that. Um, you know, I will certainly, you know, check in again on that. It's a bit unusual, I think, uh, just that, number one, it's taken so long, and number two, that it's been so tight-lipped. Uh, usually, uh, usually the parties at least get some inkling about uh, what's going on with the case, uh, with the crossfire uh, solidarity claim. I was, you know, you know, even if I wasn't getting the the direct, 
you know line i was getting you know some sourcing on that but in this case it's 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 been a bit uh annoying i guess <laughs> for me that no one has been able to find out anything it's 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 a bit unusual but you know again you know again this is a kind of a fundamental case uh that could drastically change the shape and nature of of soccer in the united states so uh to that degree it's not not overly surprising that one is taking so long and number two that it's uh it's uh there's not much information coming out so um p- picking up on another lawsuit right i mean it's just a world of lawsuits that we're going through here um but uh yesterday the associated press put out an update on the u.s women's uh national team discrimination claim and uh the update was that the Federation has formally denied allegations of gender discrimination made by the players of the U.S. women's national team. Uh, And just to kind of update the audience, on March 8th in U.S. District Court in Los Angeles, the uh, 28 members of the current uh, women's player pool filed um, a lawsuit under the Equal Pay Act and Title VII of the Civil Rights Act alleging institutionalized gender discrimination that includes unequal pay with their counterparts on the men's national team. And, uh, and so what, if, what have you learned in the response from U.S. soccer in, in their denying uh, or denial of the allegations? Yeah, so this has been pretty interesting. I've actually, I'm actually looking at a copy of their answer right now, and I haven't gone through the whole thing. Uh, they've essentially denied all of the allegations as one might expect, um, uh, the serious allegations. Uh, for those who aren't overly familiar with how uh, these things work, when the complaint is filed um, uh, by the women, they allege X, Y, and Z. And in the answer, U.S. soccer is required to go through each allegation and either admit them, deny them, or say they don't have enough information um, to to respond. Um, and so it's kind of it's kind of a it's a very legalistic formal thing. Like they'll admit that Alex Morgan is an, is a member of the U.S. national team. That's how detailed they get to these allegations. So uh, you know, aside from you know admitting that Alex Morgan is is a U.S. national team player and employed by them, uh, they've denied most of the serious allegations. One of the most serious. Uh, or salacious ones was that the uh, the women's national team um, alleged that the federation at one point told them that the reason that they could not pay the women um, equally, uh, quote unquote, was because of market realities, which did not allow them to do so. Uh, U.S. soccer outright denied that allegation um, that a, a federation official ever said that. So that's going to be an interesting deposition when they bring that person in to ask them questions under oath uh, about about those uh, statements, because if the Federation is denying that, that means that someone's lying. Um, they also spent a fair amount of time in this in this response talking about the disparities in in uh, revenue um, and the disparities between the men and women. Like they point out that the uh, Women's World Cup prize for winning the World Cup in 2015 was uh, $2 million versus in 20, uh, 2018, the men, the prize for the men women winning the, uh, the World Cup was $38 million. 
Now that would explain a pay disparity, but I'm not sure that really cuts to the, you know, that's not necessarily something that is a good defense because your, your, your defense to why you can't pay them enough is to point out how little the uh, FIFA pays uh, the women versus the men. So uh, again, that's one of those things that is technically true, but is not necessarily going to cut to the, the benefit um, of the Federation, at least in the public in public opinion. Um, they, they also address uh, issues regarding regarding flights, playing surfaces. Uh, they uh, <laughs> one of the more legalistic answers that I found very amusing uh, when the women alleged that the Federation was making the play on uh, grass, you know, uh, on turf surfaces more than the men. The Federation's response was, uh, yes, the women do play on different surfaces than the men. And that was that was the extent of their response, which is uh, not really a response uh, to the allegation. So uh, it's 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 pretty standard um, in these situations uh, for the Federation to to non answer answer, because you're obviously as a a defendant, you're not going to give away more than you have to. And uh, so it'll be interesting, interesting to see where we go from there, because there is still the Hope Solo uh, uh, lawsuit that's out there, which essentially mirrors the uh, the women's national team lawsuit. And there's a fight right now to try to figure out, number one, whether the Hope Solo suit should be consolidated with the women's national team suit and then where those suits should be heard, because they can either be heard in San Francisco, where Hope Solos is. LA's, which is where the women's national team is, or in Chicago, Illinois, uh, where U.S. soccer would like it to be. And there's a hearing set for this month to determine all of those things. And so once that's done, then we'll know a little bit more about how the field is going to play, um, because you need to know where you're going to play first. When when you look at this uh particular lawsuit and and it's it's hope solo's lawsuit it's mirrored here in the u.s women's national team lawsuit u.s soccer has had uh and and i have i have heard this from multiple sources a a mentality and a culture of the men's program is our priority the women's program they should be thankful that we have a program kind of this has been not necessarily it may not may not be a reflection on the current leadership within u.s soccer but that there has been a culture of uh placing a higher priority or value on the men's team versus the women's team and one of the things i found interesting in this response uh, it said that U.S. soccer maintained in the response that any alleged differences in pay between the men's and women's national teams were not based on gender, but differences in the aggregate revenue generated by the different teams and or any other factor other than sex. So um, the reason why I, I highlight that point is because the Barcelona uh, FC Barcelona is wanting to put a team in the NWSL and the, it's in limbo because the NWSL was set up to be major league soccer, single entity, you know, 1.0, let's start over and, and, and do this on the women's side with the NWSL. And, and so there's some, there, there are some, functional hurdles because FC Barcelona is an independent club with their own independent sponsorship contracts 
and and it's uh, it, their their contracts with Nike, for example, are so exclusive that they they cannot even be uh, they cannot even have a team in a league like the NWSL and play in an Adidas jersey or anything else, even though it's separate from the club playing in Spain. So the the, the reason why I bring them up is that the FC Barcelona leadership identified in the US the one of the main priorities for for being here starting an office and then wanting to put a women's team in the NWSL was because this has traditionally been the the greatest uh level of women's soccer in the world you know for decades yeah. And and our and our national team is 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 proof of that, and and one of the things that FC Barcelona highlighted, and this has nothing to do, right? I'm I'm not saying that this is included in this discrimination filing. I, I I'm talking about U.S. soccer's response, and 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 then and what I found interesting is that FC Barcelona identified that one of the reasons why they felt like the FC Barcelona Femini, which is the women's team side of the of the club, why they wanted to put a FC Barcelona Femini team here in the NWSL is because the most watched football, global football match ever in America was the U.S. women's national team. I believe it was versus Japan. And, um, and so FC Barcelona was was noting in their reasoning for wanting to be in the NWSL that, you know, it's, it was, it's the women's team that has had the success and the women's team that is the most watched. And yet U S soccer says that, that the aggregate revenue generated by the different teams, look, nobody's watching the men's national team uh, on a scale compared to what we've seen in the past with the women's national team. They're not having the success on the field and they're certainly not getting the eyeballs or butts and seats uh, for the men's national team compared to the women's national team. So I find all of that a bit odd that your defense is no, it has nothing to do with women and it has all to do with business. And then when you go look at the business metrics, it says the opposite story of you know, what, uh, what is actually played out, uh, you know, here commercially, uh, with revenue and attendance, et cetera. Yeah. So the, the attendance revenue thing is, is obviously something that's going to come up, uh, quite a bit and excuse me in this lawsuit and it does make its presence throughout, throughout the answer in the, uh, U S soccer's, uh, the Federation's defense, uh, of the claim, you know, the, you know, they deny the, that the Federation officials said that market realities prevent equal pay, but the, or the answer to the complaint is, is, you know, littered with references to that being the reason that they can't pay them equally. Uh, And, you know, obviously the men's national team has, you know, has its own issues, which have, have resulted in, uh, you know, diminishing revenues diminishing eyeballs diminishing butts and seats and the women uh certainly have held up their share over the past uh you know 10 years let's say even you know they want they finally uh got the world cup back uh in in 2015 but they were in the final in 2011 
Um, and so at least, you know, they've, they've had a good run of things uh, with the women's national team on the field. And, you know, they point out in their complaint that the victory, the victory tour they went on uh, after the world cup brought in the federation, a substantial amount of money. In fact, I need to, you know, scroll down and see how the federation responded to, to that particular uh, allegation. Um, and so, you know, there's no doubt that the the ceiling for the men is is at this point still way higher um, as far as revenue generation, um, but you know the realities are at least over the past four or five years. Uh, let's like let's say since about 2017, uh, leading up to the failure to qualify the world for the World Cup, uh, the men certainly have not been fulfilling uh, you know fulfilling that that promise. Um, either on the field or in the uh, in the stands, um, and so it's interesting that the federation still kind of uh, works on that. And you know, they the reason that I'm sure they they reference the World Cup, uh, you know, World Cup, you know, winners' revenues, you know, uh, disparity between the men and the and the women, you know, 38 million to to two, uh, which is a 19 to one uh, disparity. Um, is to again point out that they're you know again they without saying it they're talking about market realities, um, and so the question will be in the lawsuit whether that really matters in a in a discrimination uh, context, um, especially for a, a not for profit organization, um, and so those are the kind of things that will get hashed out in a law in the lawsuit going forward, assuming it, it survives any motions to dismiss or what have you, um, but. Those those answers we're, we're on those issues uh, we're not going to have for a while. But uh, again, it, the federation, without saying it, are saying that market realities are affecting, uh, you know, their pay structures. And I, you know, I guess to be fair to, uh, to the federation, uh, the women um, had a collective bargaining agreement that they entered into uh, recently, um, which took care of some issues that uh, that they were previously complaining about. But uh, obviously, there were still issues that need to be resolved, and the women have a different pay structure uh, than the men. The men are on a pay-for-play, uh, essentially. You know, they get paid for the appearances, where the women, all of the women um, on the national team, are are salaried by the federation, and, and that's all of them. Um, and so they they have their set salary, um, and so that was by uh, presumably by design and request of the women's national team. Um, again, I've talked to the Federation a little bit on this. And so I've gotten a little bit of background and I hope to do the same for the women uh, in the interest of obviously getting their perspective. And I'd certainly love to talk to, uh, to Hope Solo to get her perspective. Um, and so now that we have an answer, we kind of have, now that we have U.S. Soccer's response, you can, I can go back to both of them and, and you know kind of follow up and, and see um, how their positions have changed, um, if at all. Um, having having gotten this information well on that case to wrap that one up i mean i to me the simple answer is treat both the same uh if, if we in an era in this country where we are are make wanting to make sure that we don't have discrimination in and we have traditionally been the 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 standard bearer globally uh, on the women's side, um, we should set an example for the rest of the world. It's, sometimes it's not about what's legal. It's about what's right. 
and what is right in this case what is just and what is right and just to me is that we should treat both of our uh national team programs men and women uh in in equal ways so you know whether that's you know first class airfare if that's five star hotels if that's per diem if that's pay like we should treat them and 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 do what is right and just uh rather than what we can get away with or what is you know what we can escape with legally or what is legal or what is permissible um, rather than trying to get as close to the edge of the cliff as possible and not fall off, we should try to instead get as far away from the cliff and set an example and say, hey, this is what it means to treat your national teams in a respectful way, in an equal way. And, and this is this is what we hope to be uh, an example to the rest of the world. And, and, it, and to me, it comes down to the point of, you know, the Federation, this is just another example to me where the Federation doesn't look to lead. It, it, it is always reactive. It's not proactive. A proactive leadership uh, mentality and culture within, a, within the Federation would have already had this situation sorted out a long time ago because they would be trying to lead and not respond uh, on this. And, and, and the last thing that I want to do as we wrap up here, um, the... I have I've been uh, hearing for for quite a while uh, over a year that the U.S. adult soccer and the NPSL uh, as well, but it's been other leagues um, under the U.S. adult soccer have either done done so in the past or have encouraged uh, even recently clubs to sign players to zero dollar professional contracts. Um, number one, have you heard this? And, and number two, what are the legal ramifications for um, signing a person to a professional contract without compensation? Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent question. Um, and, and we talked a little bit about this uh, off uh, before we got on the air that, you know, it those are tough. Those are tough issues to suss out. Um, obviously, those things would not happen in a uh, league where the players are are in a union and uh, are collectively bargaining these issues. Um, we've also heard about at the USL level uh, that you know while they weren't zero dollar contracts, they were heavily incentive laden with minimal pay. Um, you know, as a general rule, uh, you know, <laughs> you. You don't want you don't want your players or you don't want players signing those types of deals, whether they're legal or not per se. It depends on what you know what the compensation is, if anything at all. Uh, presumably, the the players are potentially getting um, uh, per diems or our room and board, or things or things like that. Uh, so it's unlikely that they're getting no, nothing whatsoever. Um, essentially, being an unpaid intern. Um, obviously, at the lower league levels, the, the, the monies are, you know, simply not there, uh, which, of course, raises other issues. But uh, without knowing what the contracts are structured like, it's difficult to say, um, because at those, especially at those lower league levels, uh, there's, as I said, there's not really, there's not the money to, you know, to pay them anything. Um, but there's nothing, I don't think there's anything per se that prohibits such a contract 
unless it is a deal where they can't get out of it, then you probably run into some issues there because uh, then you're talking about, you know, you know, some type of indentured servitude, essentially, uh, that a court is not going to look uh, kindly upon because, uh, you know, signing a player to a, such a zero dollar contract and uh, with or little compensation and then trying to hold them up if they, you know, for instance, try to, you know, are able to to work their talents into uh, to higher paying gigs. Uh, is something that uh, a court probably isn't going to look too kindly on. So, again, without knowing all of the information, I, I don't, I don't want to get all you know too far in depth on that. The, uh, the, real yeah, quick, as you're kind of going down that road right there, would this uh, be a problem in states that require uh, workers' compensation by by not paying and say putting them on um, you know appearance uh, or I've even heard discussions in the past about modeling contracts. So we're not going to pay you a professional player salary. We're going to pay you a modeling contract, and then we can get around having to pay workers' compensation. Um, have Have you do Do you think that that would would trigger in 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 terms of certain states issues when it comes to you know the requirements of of workers' compensation and other other issues like that? Oof, that's a that's a uh, that's a one that's probably a bit beyond me without doing a little more research, uh, especially as you uh, talk about different states with different laws. You obviously have like right to work and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, and so, uh, assuming that yeah, I, I I couldn't hazard a guess on that one, uh, just just based on uh, not knowing enough about it. Fair enough, fair enough, and. Uh... Thank look, thank you for coming on the show. We went a little over today, and I don't normally go a little over, um, but you know, we had so much to cover, and uh, felt oh, like yeah. felt like uh, you know, I know we're gonna have a, a lot to cover when we have you back on soon, uh, because there's always something else coming up, something else coming out, and uh, really do appreciate you uh, getting up, making time for us early out there on the West Coast. Uh, you know, hopefully that cup of coffee uh, will, will keep you going through the rest of the day. Oh, I'll probably make another one here in a minute. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Well, thanks coming up. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks a lot. Have a good uh, rest of the day. Thank you. That is uh, Mickey Turner, who uh, joined us today, and uh, and he was giving us all kinds of insight uh, in 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 review of the legal cases, etc. So, look, thanks thanks for tuning in the show. We did go over a little bit today, but I uh, wanted to kind of get in some of those uh, some some of those thoughts to kind of see uh, and pick his brain on on what he what he knows, what he's learned, what he's uh, hearing around U.S. soccer. So. It's unfortunate we live in a in a country where the Federation can't get its act together, and so we have to talk about legal challenges instead of the global game of football. It is what it is. Hopefully that will change one day, and uh, that's one of the reasons why we do this show each and every day. Weekday live, weekdays live at 9 a.m. Eastern. Thanks for joining us. We will see you again tomorrow.